just the flake news of the week. Um, all about flake, flake cast, flaky weeds. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, today I have with me uh, just uh, Andrew Prokop uh, because I, I really wanted to sort of delve into a story that that he published this week uh, called, what's it called? It's called The Purge. It's called The Republican Purge Has Only Just Begun. Yeah, and this is a great piece. Everybody should read it. Um, and I think it's it's about some of the events that have sort of made waves this week, but it's really about the kind of deeper trends that that lie beneath it. But first, I mean, let's let's talk about what happened on Tuesday, which was a, an odd day in Republican Party politics. Yeah. So uh, on Tuesday, Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona announced that he was not going to run for re-election in 2018. He gave a speech on the floor denouncing Donald Trump and really seeming to question his own party's uh, hesitancy to criticize Trump. Now, Flake himself wrote a book that he published earlier this year called Conscience of a Conservative, in which he he really did sort of lay out a multi-pronged critique of Trump there. But some have criticized him because he he's a conservative Republican and he's tended to support the party's agenda in his actual votes in Congress. And also, he hasn't really, you know, seemed to be too aggressive when it comes to oversight or, or any of the other sort of things you can do. He, he, he really seemed to be waging this ideological critique that he was trying to make in his book. And what he specifically said was that he, he objected to Trump's anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim kind of rhetoric and policies. He criticized Trump for not being conservative enough on economics and foreign policy. And he also just kind of generally criticized his character, behavior, and fitness for office. Flake's book, it seemed to me, was really well-timed for the primary timeline that we, in which Hillary Clinton is president and in which we don't happen to be living in, right? But like, when we thought Hillary was going to win, we thought there were going to be a lot of post-election recriminations from Republicans. And the stance Flake takes in the book is a stance that, in that counterfactual reality, I think would make a lot of sense, right? Like, there would be different camps, but like the Jeff Flake camp that's like, hey, guys, we went and did something a little nutty, and, like, we shouldn't have done that. We should come back to the pure conservative principles of our fathers. Like, the book title echoes the title of Barry Goldwater's book, right? Barry Goldwater was a senator from Arizona before Jeff Flake was a senator from Arizona. It's like a Republicans are in the wilderness, you know, come come to Jesus or or Joseph Smith in, in uh, Flake's case, and, and, you know, let's, like, have a renewal. In the Trump era— like, it's weird because Donald Trump is governing and Jeff Flake is also governing. And so one naturally asks, like, what's Jeff Flake doing? And the answer is he's quitting. Yeah. And and it was also an odd choice just, you know, uh, where Republicans have tended to align strategically if they've criticized, if they have misgivings with what Trump is doing or they don't like the direction he's taken the party in. Republicans in elected office have generally decided to keep their mouth shut about it this year. 
occasionally one or two of them will speak up every so often. But um, but it was really odd for Flake to go so out front and drop this book. And, um, you know, it, it did, as you're saying, it, it sort of disconnected from the powers of his office necessarily. This is a book he could have written if he was just a conservative columnist at some media outlet. You know, there there was really nothing particularly about being a senator that uh, has sort of made his behavior change this year, his, his actual political behavior. Um, that may be different now. He said that he wants his um, decisions and actions in office for the remainder of his term until he's gone at the end of 2018 to be completely detached from an effort to win renomination and to win a primary. So maybe he will start doing more uh, on the actual, you know, policy political front using his powers as a senator more. But um, I, th- I think he has been hesitant to because he was looking at this potential primary all along. And, you know, so he he's kind of been restrained. Like he wrote the book, but it's not like he went on TV every single week criticizing Donald Trump. Like, like he was he was trying to sort of have it both ways to kind of preserve at least a glimmer of a hope to win a primary. Right. So, so I mean, part of the change here is that Flake had been looking at a very tough primary challenge all year, right? Mm-hmm. And had seemed to be losing, frankly, to not even that strong a candidate. He was down by by uh, by September. He was trailing by about twenty five points in two separate polls, which is just absolutely horrific numbers for an incumbent. You almost never see numbers like right. that. So what happened on Tuesday was he he gave up and he gave a speech that was much more I don't know how quite how to put it, but it was like meaner than his book. You know, like he said, "I will not be complicit in." the various degradations of public life and and blah, 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 um, implying that his colleagues are complicit, right? And saying very explicitly that one of his goals in not running for re-election is to sort of, like, cut himself off from these political-type considerations. And so I think it, it raised expectations that, like, there should be a a second punch, right? So it's like, here are my ideas, and now, like, here's the thing I'm going to do about my ideas. But he doesn't seem to... And I sympathize. I mean, there's a certain back and forth about this where, like, some conservative will be like, Trump is bad because he does crazy tweets. And then a liberal will be like, but you're voting with Trump on tax policy. And then a conservative will be like, well, why should a conservative abandon conservative tax policy just because Trump has bad tweets? And and I sympathize with all of that. Um it just still remains the case that, like, politics is a field of um, of action and that it's incumbent on a would-be political leader to come up with some kind of a plan. And to me, I mean, this has been a striking theme of, like, never-Trump conservatism for one or two years now is a lot of kind of, like, notions, but very little in the way of, like, here's what we're going to do. Here's who I'm going to work with. Here's what we're going to try to accomplish. And here's the means that we're going to use. And I, I I was watching Flake's speech and I was like, all right, like what what's coming? And like, it seems like nothing is coming. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that'll be interesting to watch over the next um, year or so until the new class of 
Congress comes in in 2019 is whether these lame duck Republican senators who dislike Trump will really try to get together on anything. That That's sort of the traditional thing to do in the Senate if you want to flex your muscles is to form a group that can actually block legislation or or nominees or so forth. And, and there's, right now, there's Bob Corker, who's retiring. There's Jeff Flake. There's John McCain, who is probably not going to run again in 2022 when he's next up. Uh, and it seems like they could get together. Maybe there's something they could do on, you know, more oversight on the Russia scandal, a tougher sort of um, scrutiny of nominees to U.S. attorney posts, for instance, that there have been some sort of questions about Trump personally interviewing those nominees and and whether that could um, present some kind of conflicts. Um, But we really haven't seen it so far. I mean, it only takes three Republican senators to get together to block any nominee or bill. And they, you know, obviously the Obamacare bill went down. But as far as anything else, really, we, we just haven't seen it. And even the Obamacare bill, which went down, right, it went down in a very disorganized way, right? It was not the case that McCain, Collins, and Murkowski formed a blocking coalition that put out some kind of collective uh, demands and that then Mitch McConnell and other Republicans were unwilling or unable to meet those demands or that in meeting the demands, they lost votes on the right. You could imagine something that had played out that way with like defined blocks and negotiation and ultimately a failure. But like actually what happened was, was that they rushed toward the end zone with a bill that they thought maybe might pass or maybe might not. And at the last minute, John McCain decided he was against it. Uh, Collins and Murkowski, who were not enough to block the bill, sort of had laid out some some red lines and some real markers. Uh, but McCain just kind of scuttled it, um, which from, I mean, I don't know, if you like Medicaid, like good for John McCain. But it's again, it's not very efficacious senatoring compared to something like how House Blue Dogs, back when Democrats had a majority, would try to, you know, hold meetings and have a decision-making process amongst themselves and exercise their leverage, right? You you could imagine, I mean, Flake, Corker, McCain, and I would say Susan Collins have all gone, in one way or another, like pretty far off the Their political brands at this point are not, like, hinged on Donald Trump liking them. And they could get together and try to say, I don't know, here's, like, three things that are really important to us, and we're going to try to get them done, and then think about ways to get those things done. But they don't don't really seem to collaborate. Even, Even the flake thing, coincidentally, was timed on the same day that Bob Corker went on all the morning shows to talk about how Trump is a maniac, but that doesn't seem to have been coordinated. Yeah, and I think that for these senators who are sticking around, they're under a lot of pressure not to do anything as ostentatious as form a block. Like, this is that is something that Mitch McConnell and leadership really would not like. They would see it as a serious threat. And if you are 
say, Lisa Murkowski or John McCain, you want things from Mitch McConnell. John McCain cares deeply about how um, his military authorization bill turns out. Lisa Murkowski really wants to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for more oil drilling there. And these are things that McConnell could either cooperate with or not cooperate with. So they're trying to sort of calibrate their opposition. You know, it's always up to them whether they vote for or against something in the end. But challenging the leadership's power so ostentatiously by forming a gang or a block or something like that, uh, they haven't wanted to do that yet. And now I, I think with Corker and Flake headed out the door, there might be more of an impetus to. And just the things Flake is saying, this was true when he wrote his book too. Uh, you know, the severity of the problem he seems to describe. He, he describes, you know, all sorts of, in stark terms, how, how tr- he thinks Trump is unfit for office and how he's dangerous to democracy. And it would seem that uh, th- such a severe problem in his mind would, would merit a severe response that goes beyond just, you know, saying this is a problem. Like, you should probably come up with more creative tactics to do something about it, and and they really haven't yet. And so now the question is whether, now that he doesn't have to have this primary in the back of his mind anymore, whether he will be a little more creative going forward. Yeah, and Jeff Flake, you know, if you're listening, I, I have some ideas. We could we could talk about some some more creative legislative tactics. I, I, I want to take a break, and, and then I want to talk about uh, the, the purge that, that you're describing more properly, because it's interestingly a little bit different. If you like journalism, information about the world of any kind, uh, magazines are just an incredible way to get it. There's high-quality writing, beautiful photography and design. And now, with Texture, you can get all your magazines in one place. Uh, The Texture app gives you unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines from the top publishers. Texture is bleeding titles like Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired. And right now, you can try Texture for free. And with the Texture app, it's better than print. It has all the great design elements, everything that you'd love for the magazine world. But with Texture, you get unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines uh, for free. And it's just a really great way to get uh, recommendations, uh, extra digital features, all kinds of bonuses. Uh, So you can imagine having your favorite magazines, all their back issues, anytime, anywhere. To start your Texture free trial, go to texture.com slash weeds. If you choose to continue, podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. That's over 30% off their listed price. It's also a great gift option available for the holiday season. So you go to texture.com slash weeds to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. So I think of this Flake, Corker, McCain stuff is kind of like the tip of the iceberg that's above the water. This was in the headlines this week. It was making a lot of news. Uh, But what you're writing about is not a narrow effort to sort of dislodge a couple of hardcore Trump critics. Uh, You're talking about a, a plan that Steve Bannon seems to have hatched that goes that goes a lot bigger than taking on the Jeff Flakes and, and John Cornyn's of the caucus. Yeah. Uh, so basically, Steve Bannon, the former White House chief strategist, now on the outside, he has said that he wants to make basically a totally new Republican Party, tear down the existing establishment and its leadership and 
just build something new to replace it. So what he's doing in 2018 is he's backing primary challengers to almost every Republican senator on the ballot. The only exception is Ted Cruz, who he thinks is enough of a kind of firebrand, bomb thrower, anti-leadership guy uh, to, to merit being spared. But every sort of ordinary Republican senator, which includes Roger Wicker from Mississippi or Deb Fisher from Nebraska, John Barrasso from Wyoming, like these are people who who vote very conservatively, but they don't get a lot of headlines and they don't, they're not like eager culture warriors and and they're not sort of making trouble for Mitch McConnell all the time. And to Bannon, that is enough to make him want them gone. Like he wants, he wants more Ted Cruz's. Uh, he wants more you know, disruptive kind of people. And and what I think that a lot of this sort of coverage of this has gotten a little wrong is that Bannon is usually described as, as a nationalist populist who wants the Republican Party to be much harsher on immigration and but but also has different views on economics. Like he he's He's very uh, critical of recent trade deals. And and in the White House, there were all these stories about how he would be pushing for a big infrastructure plan or wanted to raise tax cuts on the rich. And those latter two in particular have really sort of fallen by the wayside in his effort to recruit challengers because he's really trying to build a coalition that can take down the existing establishment. And as he surveys the world of conservative activist groups and what conservative voters really care about, what he's noticed is that a lot of this dissatisfaction is highest on the the biggest traditionally conservative activists or or the people who really want to slash government spending or or the freedom caucus types in the house or or the outside groups that have been supporting primaries like this for years like heritage action and and so on so he views those groups as allies in his project in destroying the existing congressional wings establishment leadership which is currently Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, and replacing them with something else. I, I think this is, this is important to, to bear down on in, in some detail, right? So Donald Trump, as a candidate, as a primary candidate, right, he, in important ways, taxed to the center on economic issues, right? He says there's going to be no cuts to Medicare and Social Security. He kind of muses about cutting taxes on the rich. He endorses a Glass-Steagall, 21st century Glass-Steagall bill that would break up the largest international banks. He's critical of international trade deals. And he criticizes trade deals in populist terms that would be familiar from Dick Gephardt or... um, Sherrod Brown, or frankly, John Kerry's 2004 campaign against George W. Bush. And I think I think there's something underplayed about this in, like, post-2016 election analysis, because so, so much happened in 2016. But, like, one sort of banal thing that happened in 2016 is that Donald Trump abandoned certain unpopular right-wing economic policy stances and gained votes as a result of that. Um, in a sort of very normally kind of way. 
Then in office, Trump has governed as a much more orthodox, you know, tax-cutting, deregulating conservative than he campaigned as. And one of the other things that has happened while Trump has been in office is that Steve Bannon, who very much uh, plugged these populist economic themes, left the White House under somewhat contentious terms. So the obvious, like, next chapter for Bannon, just in an abstract space of pure logic, would have been to take up that ideological banner of campaign Trump and, like, find candidates who would resist that pull toward establishment economic policy views, and of course also insisting on right-wing views on immigration and Islam and, and all that other stuff. But it's not just that, like, Bannon hasn't taken that path. What you write about is that Bannon has done the opposite, right? That he's formed an alliance with the long-standing sort of economic policy ideological purists on just a common goal of electing people who will say mean things about Mitch McConnell. Yes, or uh, or people who are just sort of more, you know, eager to shake things up, tear down the system. I don't know, like people that will just be harder for leadership to whip into line on certain votes. Like right now, there, there are probably only, you know, um, from the right, there are only two or three people in the Senate who really fit that description. And, and he wants to sort of build up that block. And And I think you also have to keep in mind that, you know, we talk about this ideological project, but also Bannon um, runs a uh, right-wing news website, Breitbart News. And he's, you know, he's very plugged into sort of what people are clicking on, what people are reading, where the energy is. And and he, part of his project is to promote politicians who would be more likely to say the kind of things that Breitbart readers would like. And one thing that's been pretty clear over the course of this year is that, you know, economic you know, liberalism is not, you know, one of the things that is most likely to get you clicks on Breitbart News. It's the sort of um, the immigration issues, the racial controversies and and things like that. They, they generally try to downplay the economic side, though, though they write about uh, trade uh, a fair amount. But I mean, I guess I have like a somewhat harsher view of that. Like if I think back to Andrew Breitbart's days at Breitbart, like one of the things he really pioneered in journalism was deliberately making things up, right? Like the way politicians will often do that, right? Like, so he would do things like collaborate with people and do sting videos where then the sting video wouldn't show anything damning. So they would just edit it wrong. Right. So that was like, I mean, lying has always existed in human endeavor. But like traditionally in the journalistic view, people try not to lie. But like Andrew Breitbart, he fucking loved lying. And Steve Bannon, I think, has just like brought that to the fore. Like he's financed by a family of wealthy New York finance billionaires who he likes to hang out with on their luxury yacht in Cannes, France. And he and his really rich friends have decided that one way to help his really rich friends get really, really rich is to just pretend that they're doing something else. And so, like, th- this is, like, the the Bannon-Trump deal, I think. It's just, like, they're just lying. 
not like downplaying it because it doesn't get clicks. Like what Steve Bannon wants is for there to be no taxes and no welfare state and no regulation of business. But he thinks that's unpopular. And like Republicans have long had complicated strategies for dealing with the unpopularity of those ideas. But his idea, which I think is better, is to just lie. There's something to that. But I do think that, you know, he was... If you go back to November 2016, Trump had just won. Bannon was coming in to be White House chief strategist. The possibilities really seemed endless there. And he was going around talking about, like, how he, in the White House, soon was going to infuriate conservatives by putting together a trillion-dollar infrastructure spending plan, rebuilding everything in the country, and, you know, it would make those uh, traditional Republican conservatives' heads explode. But but they're going to do this, and they're going to completely build a new political coalition and and rework just just the how American politics works. And I think he... he did want to do that. That is something that that he thought would have been a good idea. And he just got to the White House and just ran into this complete wall of resistance and also, I think, was perhaps reminded of just how strong the forces within the Republican Party and the Republican coalition who don't want new spending, who uh, would never in a million years support a big infrastructure plan who really, really want to cut entitlements and and cut Medicaid and so on and who really, really hate tax increases. Like, those are extremely powerful forces in the conservative movement and the Republican Party who have have been around for decades. And, uh, you know, you can... I just, I just, I don't see the evidence that... So, like, he said, as you said, right, there was, like, this very splashy, like, I'm going to make conservatives' head explode. I'm going to get behind a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. Yeah. And he said that, like, not just once, but, like, multiple times to many, many different outlets. Senate Democrats then put together a proposal for a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. And it's not like, ultimately, that proposal died due to fierce resistance from hardcore conservatives like Steve Bannon never had them over for a meeting. Yeah. I mean, like there was no, there was no, uh, Breitbart never ran a story about how there was this proposal and maybe it was good. Like he didn't make any effort to do any of these things. And that's why he didn't succeed. Meanwhile, he's like, seems to be legitimately trying to get D- Danny Tarkanian elected Senator from Nevada it's hard to do things in Washington, but it's impossible to do them if you don't try at all. Yeah, it, and I think there was a strategic decision made in the White House to sort of back the Ryan McConnell view of what the ordering of the legislative strategy should be, that they should do health care first and then tax cuts, infrastructure, TBD. Like, this was a call made by Reince Priebus, and, and Trump signed on to it, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe Bannon could have protested a little more, argued a little better, turned that over, but uh, it's not like he had sole authority to do this kind of thing in the White House and chose not to do it. Like, this was many other factors went into these decisions about what the administration should prioritize. 
But but I do think that what he wants to do with the Republican Party, it is maybe less ideologically coherent than uh, than one might think and is more about sort of attacking enemies, kind of negatively focused. And he's Breitbart is always best and Bannon is always best when they are attacking someone and, and when they've sort of deemed an enemy, not when they're trying to proactively do something. And so he's named McConnell as his top enemy and target for for the next couple of years. And, and he's just going to, as he said, try to make him toxic. And so he's just using whatever uh, he can to do this. And, and there is some ideological coherence. I think all of the challengers he's going to back are going to be really anti-immigration, um, really against any sort of uh, deal on to protect the dreamers or anything like that. But that is also an issue that has proven itself again and again to be really, really potent in Republican primaries. And you sort of have, you know, you're making the case and other people have made the case that Trump's heresies on economics and entitlement spending and so on were more important in the primaries than a lot of people give it credit for compared to, you know, everyone says he w- he won the primaries because he demagogued on well, I immigration. Know, I, I was saying in the, the, the general election. Oh, yes. Well, the, well, that's a totally different right. question. And, and, and that's something that I don't think he's really focused on at all. He wants to build his prestige and power as a kingmaker in the Republican Party, and he wants to destroy the existing leadership of the Republican Party. And the way you do that is through primaries. And if he ends up uh, if his some of his uh, more far-out challengers are successful and they lose in the general election, then, you know, I, I don't know if he would necessarily... That's a problem for the future. The, the current um, objective is to try to embarrass and humiliate Mitch McConnell as much as possible. All right, let's take a break. I want to talk about what's, what's the end game of this supposed to be. Leaving the house these days is, is a huge routine. You know, you got to find your keys, you got to find your wallet, your bag, your laptop, your phone. But with Tracker, that can change. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything with their first tracking device. And now they've done it again with their all new Tracker Pixel. Uh, so with Tracker Pixel, you never worry about losing your things again. It's the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You place the Tracker Pixel on whatever it is you tend to lose. Uh, keys, wallets, uh, even your cat. I don't have a cat. I lose my keys all the time. Get my tracker there. It's small enough to fit on anything. When you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, use your smartphone and a 90 decibel alert will help you find it in seconds. That's like a loud noise. And it even has a powerful LED light so you can find anything even in the dark. What's really cool is if the thing that you've lost is your phone, you just press the button on your tracker pixel, you know, so you you use your keys to find your phone or your phone to find your keys. Uh, So your phone will ring even if it's on silent mode. And then you can even locate your item if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. So you can go back to, you know, the restaurant or whatever it is you lost it. It's like ways, but but for finding your stuff. So Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. Uh, so, okay, how do you get it? You go to the Tracker. that's T-R-A-C-K-R dot com slash weeds to get 20% off any order. That's thetrackr.com slash weeds for 20% off thetracker.com slash weeds. So I, I think you did a very good job of, of describing 
the sort of uh, Bannon Breitbart. Uh, I would say it's a sort of like Carl Schmittian approach to politics, which is about friends and enemies more than it's about, I don't know, like high-minded ideas. And Mitch McConnell is the enemy now, right? And immigration is the tool that beats Mitch McConnell. And and that's different from a different way of looking at politics, right? Because like Mitch McConnell does not have liberal views on immigration. Um, it's possible that Mitch McConnell doesn't have strongly held views on immigration at all. But certainly if, if you are just somebody who is interested in immigration policy, the conservatives have won that fight in the Republican Party, right? Mitch McConnell is like, not doing immigration deals. He's he's going along. But he's still- There is still the dreamer question that- um... Sure. But I think, I mean, I guess a converse issue, right, is like for years, LGBT activists were trying to get Democrats to endorse uh, marriage equality. And over time, they succeeded. And having succeeded, they took yes for an answer. Right. They didn't use that as a wedge to then like run primary campaigns against people who were late to the party or seemed less than fully sincere or, or, or whatever else like that. Right. They were issue activists who wanted to get the position changed. And then they shook hands and said, thank you. But it's clear that like there isn't going to be a reconciliation with Mitch McConnell. Right. There's no there's no like contract he can sign on the dotted line. Like the objective is to win primaries with anti-McConnell challengers, render McConnell toxic, and I don't know what, force him into some kind of humiliating retirement or force him to step down or or he's up in 2020, so there could be a primary challenge against him that year too. Yeah, or he might just bow out, right? Yes. Say, you know, I mean he's been in the Senate a long be crazy for Mitch McConnell to decide to announce after the 2018 midterms, this is it for me. I'm going to stay leader for the next two years, and then, then we're going to have a new guy yeah, after that. Right? Wouldn't be shocking. Right. I mean, th- th- these things happen in politics. He's, he's taking a lot of heat. But then the question is, like, to what to what end? Like, what would, what would be achieved if we added two or three more Ted Cruz-type troublemakers increased pressure on McConnell to announce his retirement. Like, what what happens differently in America then? I think a few things would be achieved. One of them would be that the Republican Party would be more scared of Steve Bannon and more solicitous of what his concerns and um, the concerns of Breitbart readers more generally to the extent that he's um, he's using that as a weapon against them. So so there there's a purely self-interested motivation here in that to the extent he's successful with these, he will become a more powerful and um, influential figure within the party that senators uh, try to keep on their good side in fear of uh, facing a primary challenge from him later on. So that's one. Um, and then the other thing I think would happen is that American politics would get more negative, more toxic, and more confrontational. The people that Bannon is backing, he's backing them specifically because they are not the types to go along and nicely support Mitch McConnell, work quietly with leadership. They'll be there on the votes when they're needed. Um, and, and kind of do normal, traditional politician things. He's supporting people who are bomb throwers, firebrands, who will just try to cause all sorts of trouble and stuff like that. So I think that 
in a way, what he achieves is um, something that he does want is, is to make a more kind of more conflict, more tumult, more kind of chaos within American politics in general. I mean, he's not trying to really build a coalition that will better pass Donald Trump's agenda. He's trying to build a coalition that will create a lot of um, drama, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, you know, think about, like, how this is is meant to work, right? I mean, there's a there's a famous uh, moment from from the French Revolution where, where one of one of the various convulsions where somebody says, uh, like like Saturn, the revolution is devouring its children. And there's a element of that to conservative politics, right? That conservative movement leaders seem most comfortable with the part of the narrative arc that's like Ronald Reagan challenges Gerald Ford in the 1976 primary. Newt Gingrich rebels against Bob Michelle and George H.W. Bush to, to go against tax increases. And less comfortable with the part that's like in the mid-80s, President Ronald Reagan needs to cut some deals on various legislative matters. Or like as House Speaker, Newt Gingrich make some balanced budget agreements with the Democratic president. And, like, I don't think that Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich suddenly changed their minds. Or in Newt's case, he just, like, went back to going and being a a bomb thrower once he wasn't speaker anymore. But it's, like, occupying governing roles requires you to discharge the responsibilities of office in certain ways that accord with how American institutions function. And it's just not compatible with being a anti-establishment firebrand. To like the majority leader of the United States Senate, I would say almost by definition, is not an anti-establishment firebrand. He's the majority leader of the United States Senate, and like he has to form a consensus among his caucus and reach deals with uh, politicians who occupy other pivot points. It doesn't, to me, like make sense to envision. Like Ted Cruz acting like Ted Cruz, but holding Mitch McConnell's position because you just like you can't do that. And maybe this isn't Steve Bannon's problem. Like he's not in governance. He's uh, I don't know what he is. He's like a political consultant and media impresario. Um, But it's a it's a strange vision of political action, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think one of the storylines of this year that's actually been interesting is uh, the House Freedom Caucus has existed for a while on the far right, and they caused all and all sorts of problems to John Boehner, um, a little bit to Paul Ryan when he came in as Speaker, um, and they were just constantly throwing things into chaos. And then this year, when things are suddenly Republicans control the presidency in both houses of Congress, Republican legislation actually might pass. Um, They did famously spike the first version of the health care bill in the House, but then they came around and learned to deal. They, They concluded that, you know, constant raging opposition was not the best approach for this 
political environment. I mean, they they won some concessions that helped bring them around, but but yeah, they they were willing to get into more of a governing posture and make a deal. And you saw that again with And by the end of healthcare, they were saying like whatever gets 50 votes in the yes. Senate, we're going to right. I mean, they they scuttled a healthcare bill, then they were made a deal in which they got real concessions. But like by the end, they were saying that they would go along with anything. Yeah, they said they would um when the Senate was struggling to pass anything, their eventually failed struggle in July, uh, I believe Mark Meadows said that the House would would be willing to sort of pass whatever the Senate did, and then that and that just happened on the budget. With, yeah, 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 exactly. So th- this isn't the highest stakes thing in the world because the budget is um, doesn't really have the force of law or result in any actual spending because of the way Congress's budgeting process is set up. It doesn't make a ton of sense. But uh, basically, the House Freedom Caucus had been squabbling over certain numbers in this on-paper budget and and whether spending was cut enough in the budget. And, And they fought a lot within the House. They eventually got some sort of compromise version that they were happy with. It passed the House. The Senate completely ignored it, wrote its own budget, passed it, and then it went back to the House and the Freedom Caucus was happy to sign on to it. And, you know, this this is the main purpose of this budget was just to set up tax reform on uh, the uh, budget reconciliation track. So that goal was achieved. But... Um, but yeah, they, but that's they were very pragmatic, right? Yeah. You're saying like, look, it's not important what these other parts of the budget say, so we're going to just go along and not make a big deal about it, right? Like, yeah. to me, that makes perfect sense. It's just a very different approach from the Freedom Caucus. It's just like think in like concrete terms: Are we getting closer to something that we want? They are, so we'll vote for it. Yes, good for you, right? Like, but that's like that's quintessential normal politics. Yeah, and. And I think there's also a certain element of growing in office, too. If you go back to the 70s, there was a series of conservative primary challenges and and conservatives trying to push more conservative candidates for a lot of these seats in the Senate and the House. And, and some of these people who actually won and were the more conservative uh, candidates at the time, like one of them is now Orrin Hatch, uh, who is now the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, and, and he, is, he is not a far-right bomb thrower at all. He, he really wants to pass this tax bill. He's been willing to deal on um, immigration in the past, and he's been in office so long that he's sort of realized the value of actually trying to achieve and accomplish some things rather than, you know, just constantly criticizing whatever is up for uh, a vote for not being conservative enough. Right. But it's it's interesting that this trajectory is so long. I, I mean, Jeff Flake, when he was in the House, was a conservative bomb thrower. And like now he's like the cuck sellout who's being driven out of the Senate. And growing in office, I think, is something, whether you think it's growing in office or like going native and selling out, it's something that happens in, in all respects. But there's a very particular... I think Republican Party conservative movement specific aspect of this, where from the 70s forward, there is a a constant state of sort of convulsion, right? And there is no moment where you're saying like, 
yeah, like this, this is it. Like this is this is what we've got to do. It, it was amazing on on that letter that it was Bannon put together like a like a sign on letter from conservative movement leaders, and some of them were guys like Richard Vigory, who like have been writing these letters since like long before you or I, you know, could read. Um, and it's it's remarkable uh, that like nothing. I don't even want to say nothing is good enough. It's just like the position that they enjoy occupying in life is this semi-outsider one where they're not, they, they're not quite, they're like wannabe kingmakers, but you really want to make like, like the guy who stands next to the king, like sort of yelling at him rather than the actual king who has to make decisions and, and take responsibility for, for things. And it's, it's conducive to Bannon's particular style of politics, because not actually governing is a good way to sort of cover up the fact that the like the math doesn't add up on the trillion dollar infrastructure bill, but also the tax cuts that's all somehow paid for by constructing a, a wall that Mexico or somebody will, will pay for. Yeah. And I think um, one thing that's going on here is that the project that is being put forward here that Bannon is trying to do. To an extent, it's about just constant opposition, but also there, if you look at what the Republican Party is now, what their coalition is now, there really are, you know, establishment elements to it. The Chamber of Commerce, there's certainly nothing liberal about them, but they're an extremely influential force in the party that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan take very seriously. They represent sort of the mainstream interests of business. And so, I mean, one way I sort of think about what he's trying to do is that he's he's just trying to reduce the power of the Chamber of Commerce and, and reduce how much, um, you know, Republican politicians care about the Chamber of Commerce compared to how much they care about what Breitbart readers think or what Fox News viewers think or something like that. Like, he wants this confrontational, oppositional brand of politics to have more sort of um, more teeth to it than um, than this kind of more establishment, sellout, keep the system working kind of thing. All right. Well, I think we, we will leave it at that until until the, the revolution comes and uh, the, the views of Weeds listeners are the dominant force in, in American politics. Uh, thank you, uh, Andrew, for um, being on with me uh, today. Uh, thanks to Peter Leonard for producing the show. And uh, we will be back next week with more Weeds. <laughs>